Good morning. <clears throat> In this episode, I'm going to read from the book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by John Gottman, PhD, and Nan Silver. I'm just going to read a, a chapter in it. Um, it's uh, chapter six, turn toward each other instead of away. It's the third principle. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm going to not read the little stories that are in here because what he does is he puts couples together uh, and then he, um, like a name, like Jack and Jill, and then he'll give scenarios. But what I am going to read is uh, his principle on turning toward each other instead of away. So this is page 89. The first step in turning toward each other more is simply to be aware of how crucial these many moments are, not only to your marriage's trust level, but to its ongoing sense of romance. For many couples just realizing that they shouldn't take their everyday interactions for granted makes an enormous difference in their relationship. Remind yourself that being helpful to each other will do far more for the strength and passion of your marriage than a two-week Bahamas getaway. Many people think that the secret to reconnecting with their partner is a vacation by the sea. But a, remote, but a romantic outing only turns up the heat if the couple has kept the pilot light burning by staying in touch in the little ways. It's easy to imagine Justine and Michael, the couple who recalled their wedding and courtship with such delight at a candlelit restaurant, but, Pete, but sit Peter and Cynthia at the next table in their evening would most likely be a fiasco, filled with accusations, recriminations, and awkward silences. One virtue of turning toward each other is that it's so easy to accomplish. It only takes a small gesture to lead to another and then another. Turning toward operates under a law of positive feedback like a snowball rolling downhill. It can start small yet generous, yet generate enormous results. In other words, you don't have to turn toward your partner in a very dramatic way to see the benefit. Just get started and things will improve by themselves. Here's one example from my own life. One day I overheard Julie grumbling softly as she unloaded the dryer. I could easily have pretended not to notice, but the grumble was a bid, a quiet one, but definitely a bid. So I asked her, what was the matter? And she said, I don't mind doing laundry, but I hate folding it. Well, I happen to like mindless tasks like folding shirts. They give me a sense of accomplishment, sort of like going over streams of numbers in the lab. So I turned toward my wife by taking over the folding. I piled the laundry on the bed, turned on music featuring jazz composer Bill Evans and his magical piano, and I was in heaven. Like many people, whenever possible, I try to do chores in a very self-indulgent, enjoyable way. Eventually, Julie drifted into the room. I knew she expected me to ask her for help, even though she hates folding the laundry. Instead, we both relaxed and enjoyed the music while I continued to fold. Julie pointed out that it had been a long time since we'd 
been to our favorite local jazz club, so we ended up heading there for dinner. In the end, my turning toward that pile of laundry turned out to be very romantic for us. Then there's an exercise. It says, is your marriage primed for romance? To get a good sense of how your relationship is faring or is likely to fare in the future, answer the questions. Read each statement and circle T for true or F for false. And then it's 1 through 20. And he has questions. So... Um, I don't want to read the questions, but I'm going to keep going uh, to the following page 91, two obstacles to turning toward. <clears throat> and John Gottman says, in my work with couples, I've noticed that two situations in particular tend to interfere with partners turning towards each other and building up their sense of trust. Here, here's how you can prevent these roadblocks in your relationship. Number one, missing a bid because it's wrapped in anger or other negative emotion. Sometimes the especially and especially if a relationship is going through a rocky period, a spouse may not recognize when the partner is making a bid for connection because it comes out sounding negative. The partner then reacts to a negative negativity to the negativity and misses the hidden plea. For example, Lena says to her husband, Carl in expiration, it would never occur to you to clear the table, would it? Carl doesn't hear Lena's bid. Please clear the table tonight. That's what she's saying. Instead, he hears criticism. The four horsemen. So it's no surprise that he responds with defensiveness. Well, when, when do you ever fill the gas tank? From there, the argument escalates. What if instead Carl responded by saying, Oh, you're right. Sorry. And then cleared the table. He'd score enormous points and probably earn a sheepish smile from his wife, who might then realize that her harsh startup was uncalled for. Similarly, say Carl wants Lena to come to bed, but she is returning emails. His bid is, please come to bed with me. But it comes out as, you're dealing with your emails right now? You had all night. If Lena focuses on plea and not his tone... She, had the, she has the opportunity to respond positively. Good point. I'll be right there. So before you reply defensively to your partner, pause for a moment and search a bid underneath your partner's harsh words. Then focus on the bid, not the delivery. If you find it difficult not to react defensively, first take five really deep breaths, counting slowly from one to six as you inhale, and then slowly from seven to 15 as you exhale. Then say to your partner, I want to respond to you positively. So can you please tell me what you need right now from me? I really want to know. If wrapping bids and criticism is a habit in your relationship and negativity is scrambling the signals between you, work on softening your startup. And that's a fact. And I have to work on that myself. Number two, being distracted by the wired world. In my works with couples, I've noticed that the internet and digital devices pose a growing challenge to turning toward. Instant access to interaction with the outside world certainly offers enormous social benefits. It has become far easier to connect and reconnect with friends and kin and for isolated, lonely people to reach out for support and understanding from like-minded individuals. However, 
There are downsides to all this connection. The ease with which other people can co contact us at all hours of the day and night can take a toll on the intimate communication that fuels both romantic love and family life. Of course, it doesn't help that many workplaces expect employees to be available via email or social media during off hours. In some cases, constantly checking emails, posting, tweets, and text messages can lead to all sorts of addiction in which distraction itself becomes a habit. In his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain, Nicholas Carr documents research that indicates self-distraction has become a permanent unconscious habit for many people. All of those electronic devices have gotten us used to have our con concentration and focus interrupted. This culture of distraction doesn't benefit intimate relationships, which require the opposite, the habit of being aware and paying attention. Often both partners will complain that the other is preoccupied and unavailable. The old cliche of the husband who hides behind the newspaper has been replaced by the spouse of either gender who is tapping out text, scanning social media, or engrossed in one of those irresistible cell phone games. I want, you, I want to tell you a little story that underlines just how important it is to present with your partner. As part of a research study, my colleague, Allison Shapiro, and I carefully analyzed videos of parents interacting with their three-month-year-olds. Um, <clears throat> we found that the infants were totally focused on the present and that nothing riv riveted them more than their parents' face and voice. But the parents didn't always realize when their babies wanted to play because young infants operate in much, on a much slower time scale. For example, if a father stuck out his tongue at his newborn, the baby might imitate him. But now until a minute or two later, but not until a minute or two later because the feat takes great effort for a young baby. Only the parents who continue to focus and play patiently with their newborn had the pleasure of witnessing their child's amazing imitation, which was really a form of communication. Watching those videos really brought home really was really brought home to me how important it is to be truly present and not split your attention into millions of pieces when engaging with someone you love of any age. Sometimes couples unconsciously use devices as self-distraction during marital conflict. For example, a spouse who is anxious about communication or ready to stonewall may use these diversions to shut down interaction. Instead of leaving the room or changing the subject with a delicate marital issue arise, he or she may just shift attention to the ever-present cell phone or tablet. In such cases, the device is enabling turning away. Usually, though, I don't think high-tech distraction and the resulting intention, inattention is deliberate or caused by a marital problem. We just don't realize how habit-forming these devices can become. The best solution to growing problem is for both partners to acknowledge if it is a concern between them and to establish rules of etiquette that work for the both of them. You'll find more about this on page 196. Couples often ignore each other's emotion, need, emotional needs out of mindlessness or malice.
If you feel that you or your partner could still benefit from help in turning toward each other, the following exercises are for you. They will make the part, the third principle an easier, more natural part of your lives together. And then it goes to exercise one, the emotional bank account. Um, keeping an account in your head of how uh, much your partner has been connecting with you in little ways is can greatly benefit your marriage. But for some couples, the concept works best if they make their emotional bank account real. You can do this by drawing a simple ledger and giving your partner one point each time he or she has turned toward you during the course of the day. You probably wouldn't want to document every encouraging nod you receive during a conversation, but you would include entries uh, for such events as called me at work to see how my meeting went or and took our van to the car wash. Share your ledgers with each each other, but be careful not to turn this into a competition or a quid pro quo where you track each other's account balance and keep tabs on who's done what for whom. That approach defeats the purpose of this exercise. So the goal so the goal is to make small improvements by noticing how your partner has become towards turning toward and giving. If you've gotten into the habit of thanking your partner and turning toward you, it may take some time to see the benefits of this exercise. So this is exercise two, the stress reducing conversation, page 97. Although you can earn points in your emotional bank <coughs> account, to just about every, an everyday activity list of, listed above, we have found that the most effective one is the first. Reunite at the end of the day and talk about how it went. This is because such discussions can be vital stress reducers that help you manage, manage tensions outside your relationship. Learning to cope with these external pressures is crucial to a marriage long-term health according to the research by Neil Jacobson. So many couples automatically have this, how was your day, dear, conversation, perhaps at the dinner table or after the kids fall asleep. But too often their discussion does not help either of them relax. Instead, it increases their stress levels because they end up feeling frustrated with each other for not really listening. If that's the case between you and your partner, Changing your approach to these catch-up conversations can ensure that they do indeed help with you both unwinding. For starters, think about the timing of the chat. Some people want to unburden themselves when they're barely walking through the door. But others need to decompress on their own for a while before they're ready to interact. Be aware of the ideal timing for each of you so that you are both in the mood to talk. On a typical day, spend 20 to 30 minutes on this conversation. The cardinal rule is that you talk about whatever is on your mind outside your marriage. This is not the time to discuss any conflicts between you. Instead, it's an opportunity to support each other emotionally concerning other areas in your lives. This exercise is really a form of active listening in which you respond to each other's venting with empathy and without judgment. Since the gripping isn't about each other uh, or your marriage. It's much easier to express support and understanding. Sometimes your end of the day discussion will be about celebrating good news, like a mini victory or 
in parenting or at work. In such cases, active listening means sharing and relishing the moment between your partner. Often, however, these conversations are opportunities to unload about minor or sometimes major irritants or problems. Instead, there is a silver lining to your partner's sadness, fear, or anger. It is that by listening to to by listening to it, you strengthen the trust between you. Experiences that generate the most negative emotions also have the capacity to build strongest bonds. In some cases, one or both partners find it uncomfortable to discuss each other's feelings. Often, the uneasiness is rooted in childhood prohibitions against expressing negative emotions. If this is the case in your marriage, see Coping with Your Partner's Sadness, Fear, and Anger on page 103. Here are detailed instructions to using active listening during the stress-reducing conversations. Number one, take turns. Each partner gets to be the complainer for 15 minutes. Show genuine interest. Don't let your mind or eyes wander. Stay focused on your partner and ask questions. Make eye contact, nod, say, "Uh uh-huh, and so on. Number three, don't give unsolicited advice. When someone you love expresses pain, it is natural to want to fix the problem or make the person feel better. But oftentimes, your spouse isn't asking you to come up with a solution at all, just to be a good listener or offer a ready shoulder to cry on. So unless your partner has specifically asked for help, don't try to fix the problem. Change how your partner feels or rescue him or her. Instead, your motto should be, don't do something, just be there. I see the fallout from unsolicited advice all the time in my work with couples. For example, Carrie was unhappy that her husband Jeff never shared his inner world with her. To find out what was happening between them, I had them carry out stress-reducing conversation in my presence. Jeff began to complain about a difficult person he had to contend with at his volunteer work. Carrie said immediately, I told you to resign from that job. It's too much stress for you. And Jeff stopped talking and Carrie turned to me. You see how he clams up? What did I tell you? I suggested that they have a conversation again. But... I instructed Carrie not to offer any advice this time. Instead, she simply asked Jeff to tell her what made this person so insufferable. Um, Eventually, Jeff opened up and they had a conversation that was satisfying to the both of them. Although Although this has changed somewhat over the years, I still found... I still find that in heterosexual couples, it tends to be the husband who gets caught up in trying to solve his partner's problems. These men are often relieved when I tell them that it's not their responsibility to rescue their partner. In fact, such attempts to save her tend to backfire. And when a wife shares her troubles, she usually reacts very negatively if her husband tries to give her advice the right away. Instead, she wants to hear that he understands and feels compassion. I'm not suggesting that it's never appropriate to problem solve with your partner 
when your partner is upset. But to paraphrase psychologist Haim Genot, the cardinal rule is understanding, quote, understanding must precede advice, end of quote. You have to let your partner know that you fully understand and empathize with their dilemma. Only then will he or she be receptive to suggestions. Number four, communicate your understanding. Let your spouse know that you empathize. If you tend to be on the quiet side or aren't in the habit of sharing emotions, you might be uncertain about what to say to show understanding. So here's a list of suggested phrases. Use, any, use them any way that feel comfortable to you. What a bummer. I'd be stressed out too. I can see why you feel that way. You're making total sense. I get it. You're in a tough spot. I wish you didn't have to go through all that. I'm on your side. I wish I could have been there for you. Oh wow, that sounds terrible. I totally agree with you. No wonder why you're upset. It would be great to be free of this. That must have annoyed you. That sounds frustrating. That sounds infuriating. I would have been disappointed too. Number five, take your partner's side. This means expressing support even if you don't think his or her perspective is unreasonable. Don't back the opposition. This will make your spouse resentful or dejected. If your wife's boss chewed her out for being five minutes late, don't say, oh well, maybe Bud was just having a bad day. And certainly don't say, well, you shouldn't have been late. Instead say, that's so unfair. The point, is, the point isn't to be dishonest, it's just, a timing, it's just that timing is everything. With your part, when your partner comes to you for emotional support rather than for advice, your job is not to cast moral judgment or to tell him or her what to do. It is to express empathy. In other words, your job is to say, poor baby. Number six, express uh, we against others attitude. If your mate is feeling all alone and facing some difficulty, express solidarity. Let him or her know that the two of you are in this together. Number seven, show affection. Hold your mate. Put an arm on his or her shoulder and say, I love you. Number eight, validate emotions. Let your partner know that his or her feeling feelings make sense to you. Phrases that communicate this include, yeah, that is really so sad. That would have me worried too. And I can see why you'd be annoyed with that. And here are two brief examples of stress-reducing conversations to give you an idea of what to do and what not to. So this is a conversation between Han and Hank. Um... So this is 103. This one seems pretty good. I'm going to read this one on the next excerpt. Page 103. Coping with your partner's sadness, fear, and anger. I worked with couples who find that the distressing exercise above actually adds to their stress because one or both of them feel very uncomfortable listening to each other express negative emotions even when they aren't the target. This is a form of turning away. I can't empathize enough how beneficial it will be to your relationship to give your partners the give your partner the gift of being there when he or she is upset 
After years of study, studying couples in the lab and working with them directly, it has become clear to me that happy, that happy couples live by the credo, quote, when you're in pain, the world stops and I listen, end of quote. Of course, when your partner's negative negativity is directed to you, it's especially hard to listen. You'll find advice on handling that in chapter nine. But here we are talking about those times in your day-to-day -day interactions when one of you shuts out the other's appeal for emotional support. Very important. Usually this very common tendency to turn away from negative emotion is rooted in childhood. Clients will tell me that as children, they knew their parents loved them, but they didn't show it very often. Yes, that's true. They were raised in families that frowned on negativity and offered little or no comfort. Feeling or expressing fear or sadness meant you were a wimp. A child's expression of anger was seen as a moral failing, a sign of disrespect, or even an indication of mental illness. Growing up in such an environment can teach you to compartmentalize your emotions so you become a self-reliant problem solver who avoids feelings because life presents us with plenty of hurdles. Having a talent for problem solving is certainly an asset, but in order to achieve real intimacy, you also need to be there for your partner to see the world form his or her perspective and to empathize with negative feelings. If either of you find it challenging to cope with others' expression of emotional pain, the following tips will help. Number one, acknowledge the difficulty. Admitting to your partner that confronting and responding to negative emotions is tough for you is a great first step. Just making it known that you are willing to work on the issue can go a long way toward improving the situation. Number two, self-soothe. If you feel overwhelmed by your partner's emotions, use the self-soothing techniques recommended on page 181. Number three, remember the goal is understanding. Don't try to problem solve or minimize your partner's feelings. Just tune in to what he or she is expressing. Number four, use exploratory statements and open-minded questions. You want your partner to talk, so frame your reactions to what you're hearing as either exploratory statements or open-minded questions. These approaches both express support and encourage a response. So example of, uh, examples of exploratory statements. Tell me a story of that. I want to know everything you're feeling. Nothing is more important to me right now than listening to you. We have lots of time to talk. Tell me your major concerns here. I think you're being very clear. Go on. Tell me all your feelings here. Tell me about how you are seeing the situation. Tell me the history of the situation. Examples of open-minded questions. What are your concerns? That's, this is my favorite question. Can you tell me more about what you're feeling? What do you need from me right now? What mixed feelings do you have? What is your worst case scenario? What makes the situation so difficult or stressful? Help me understand the situation from your point of view. What are the most important points for you? What are you most concerned about? If you could change the attitude of one key person in this situation, who would it be? 
Is this anything I'd want to add? Don't ask why. Here is a major exception to the suggestion that you ask open-minded questions. Avoid quarries that start with why. People who come from problem-solving orientation tend to love this word. But in the discussion about what your partner is feeling, why will almost, will almost always sound like criticism. When you ask, why do you think that? The other person is likely to hear, stop thinking that you're wrong. A more successful approach would be, what leads you to think that? Or help me understand how you decided that. Bear witness. When someone is upset, they want to know that their experience matters to you. So they don't feel alone. You can give your partner this gift by witnessing his or her distress. This means making it clear that you are there for your partner, understanding and respecting the experience. A powerful way to do this is to repeat back what your partner says. In other words, for example, your partner says, I can't take my job anymore. It's too much. Your boss is incompetent and I have to do all the work. You say, it sounds like you're really stressed out because your boss is incompetent and you end up having to do all the work. Did I get that right? Part of witnessing your partner's distress is to acknowledge that his or her feelings make sense to you. For example, your partner says, you should have heard how my brother talked to me on the phone. He is such a nasty piece of work. He's always putting me down. You say, so you're saying that your brother can be hostile and mean, right? I totally understand why you're upset. He's treated me that way too. Use your partner's metaphors. Sometimes people speak in metaphors, sort of like poetry. If you pick up on this, when your partner is upset and reflect it back as a part of your response, you convey that you are fully aware of what he or she is experiencing. For example, your partner says, this apartment is starting to feel like a prison. You say, wow, sounds like you really feel trapped. Is that right? Am I getting it? Your partner says, in my life, it feels like the train has left and I'm still standing on the platform. You say, so you feel like the world is passing you by and your own life is a standstill. Is that right? I'm sure that does feel crappy. So. That's the end of the reading for now. Uh, I am in a, uh, you know, to get a little uh, private here. I am in a tough situation in my life. Um, but an also blessed one where me and my wife have been going through a time um and <clears throat> i love her so much and i it's almost like i'm really trying to work on myself and my anger and my stress and my anxiety all the negative emotions that i'm going through right now um so with that i do have episodes and it's hard because I have an obsession with her where my love is so strong and I want to be the husband to her that I never was and continue to show her affection. It's almost as if I don't want her mad at me and that brings me back to when I was a child and I didn't want my mom mad at me or... I had fear of my mom hitting me when I was young because 
you know, the house wasn't clean. And not that I have fear of my wife hitting me when the house isn't clean, but I, I have fear of her um, looking down on me if I don't meet her standards. And it's a sad situation. Um, that's something that I have to heal within myself. And I am having therapy and, and taking medication to cope with that. It is improving a little bit, but a lot of these wounds are still fresh and not trying to get too emotional or too private on here. I just want to, again, love her because of the love she has for me and the care that she doesn't want to lose me and I don't want to lose her. I am sad inside, but when I'm with her emotionally and physically, skin to skin, I feel whole. I believe that God is allowing this to happen. I need to stay in it. So, you know, in your marriage or your relationship, if you're going through hard times, don't quit. Because if one of you want to make it work, you can make it work. But if both of you don't want to make it work, chances are it's not going to work. So, yeah, that's the end of this uh, episode. And I'm going to start doing more because I see this finding a way to help me explain my feelings and help others.